0: Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath.
1: Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming along to today's lecture. It's the second in the Minerva series for this academic year. Um, I did this last time. How many people are regulars of Minerva? Attendees, regular attendees. Great, well, welcome back. We're... Are there people who weren't here last time? Okay, so brilliant. Good, welcome. I'm delighted to see more people here. For those of you who are regular Minerva um, attendees, you will realise that I am not June. So for those of you who weren't here last time, and I just wanted to let you know that June has decided to stand down from um, being involved with the Minerva lecture series. And I'll say what I said last time, which is a really deep and heartfelt thanks for June for all of the work that she's put in over the years in making the Minerva series the lecture series that it was. So thank you, June. But tonight we have um, not a lecture, but a panel discussion. Try something different this time. Uh, so we have um, we have Gareth Price, who is a professor in the Department of Chemistry. We have Antoine Bouchard, who is a... Um, oh, get my notes. <laughs> a Royal Society Royals. Research Fellow. My apologise. <laughs> and we've got uh, Janet Scott, who is also a professor in the Department of Chemistry. And they're all going to talk about um, reusable and sustainable plastics. We are going to hear from each of them in turn for somewhere between five and ten minutes, and then we will open up the floor for discussion and Q&A, and we will all be done by seven o'clock. So I hope that's what you're expecting, because that's what you've got. Um, <laughs> but a little bit of housekeeping just before we begin, as, as you would expect. So um, we're not expecting any fire alarms, so if the fire alarm does go off, I will ask that you um, evacuate out of the building. So there are... Fire exits at the back and fire exits at the front, and we'll head out to the front of the building. Um, If you haven't already, the toilets, if you haven't found them already, the toilets are out of the doors and down the stairs. Um, And if I can ask you to turn your phones to silent. And I think that is it by way of housekeeping. Yeah. In which case then, I shall let you crack on. Gareth, thank you very much.
2: Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming, as Helen said. I'm going to start off, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, combating plastic pollution through redesigning polymers and some approaches that we've come up with, and some approaches that some other people have come up with. Um, Yeah, let me start. So, I guess this hit the headlines as much as anything else as a result of the Blue Planet series. Sorry,
1: I'm
2: You're getting a Terrible well, echo. Bang. Can you help? Um, that's better.
3: <coughs>
2: so, blue pan... Um... You know what it is? I think you're stepping too close to the uh, mic. be. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't me. <laughs> At least I hope it wasn't me. Um, Blue Planet outlined the problem and brought the problem very much to public attention. So let me, let me sort of start with a question. How many people in the audience think plastic should be banned as far as possible? A few. Okay. Let me see if I can change your mind a little bit. To start uh, That's a typical plastic. It's plastic called polyethylene. Used in particular for single-use carrier bags. Not so much these days, but used to be used for water, um, been replaced by others, and things like these single-use gloves and various other things. So, polyethylene. Typical plastic. On the other hand, the image on the left is an x-ray of a hip implant as people get older the hip joint tends to get a little bit worn, and the top of the femur, up here on the healthier side gets very weak and in a fork and snap and that's replaced by a titanium metal implant which is the really dark bit and uh, you have to adjust the hip so that the implant doesn't wear the bone weight what the implant looks like when it's taken apart, and guess what? Make polyethylene. So if you want to get rid of all the plastics, I'm afraid we're going to have to throw away hip replacements. So this bit is polyethylene. Uh, the trouble is that polyethylene lasts an awful long time. It's for uh, its litter, and the problem there is poor turtle has managed to ensnare itself. So there's some other examples of plastic bag where it shouldn't be, a fishing net where it shouldn't be, and those of a certain age will remember these darn things that used to go around the top of carbonated drink cans and hold them together before they decided it was better to wrap the whole thing in plastic rather than just the top. Um, an approach, just so that we get some chemistry into it, um, for those of you, and I apologise to, there are several familiar faces that have seen these slides before in the audience, but uh, plastic is made from a kind of molecule called a polymer, and the reason it's called that is that it's grouped for many parts, and they essentially consist of lots and lots of repeat units, all joined together. Sometimes we join the individual chains together, and the reason that the plastics have the properties they have is that these chains all interact with each other, they entangle with each other, and they're very strong as a result, they have very good material properties. And so they last a long time. Even in landfill, well actually especially in landfill because there's no water and oxygen and light. So an approach that came up, this was when I was a research fellow, 30 years ago. 34 years ago, but I'm not counting. <laughs> if you take every so often along those polymer chains, if you put in something that's a little bit light-sensitive, then if a fisherman leaves a fishing net out on the ice, or if a bag gets into the ocean and light irradiates it, these bits break down. Oops, there was another something. There was another Slider, no, got lost, sorry. These bits basically break down and these disappear. And you're left with much shorter fragments. You don't get rid of the plastic completely, but the shorter fragments degrade much, much more quickly. It doesn't get rid of all the problems, and in particular one of the problems that Janet's going to talk about in terms of um, metabolism into organisms. But at least it gets rid of that. It means that animals don't get ensnared. It means that um, at least large animals don't get ensnared and are safer. Let me give you a second example. Plastic bottles. Uh, I'm almost afraid to talk about plastic bottles at the moment. The I'm the impressed that they get in all sorts of uh, areas. Um, lots of wasted of plastic bottles, and lots of them seem to be finding their way into the sea. And if you um, notice, this is taken from a website called foodandwaterwatch.org. And if you look at the caption, it says, we're literally eating and drinking plastic. Fossil fuels are to blame. Well, I don't blame the fossil fuels. I don't blame the plastic. I have this vision of plastic bottles going to a cliff, lemming-like, leaping off the cliff into the ocean. It's not the plastic bottle's fault. Some idiots actually put it there or not thrown it somewhere. My wife says I get a little bit carried away at this stage, so I'm going to calm down. It's not the plastic's fault. It's the people's fault. Nobody in this room, I'm sure, of course, but it's the people's fault. So um, who would like to get rid of plastics completely? Great. Let's get rid of polyester completely problem is a significant number of the population as you get older, myself included, have heart disease and arterial problems. And the main artery that comes out of the heart, the aorta, tends to swell a little bit and form an aneurysm. And the way that those are treated is to push a little polyester tube up inside the aorta to actually reinforce the aorta and stop the pressure on the walls and to stop it thirsting. That's made from a polymer called Dacron, or Dacron, which is exactly the same polymer that we use to make plastic bottles. And lots of other things, incidentally. So that's my before dinner slide. I'll keep the after dinner slides for later. So how do we go about reusing? Well, there's some inventive ways of reusing plastic bottles. I like that one. And that one. Um, much more importantly, of course, we all recycle these days. Don't we? We do. So you recycle, you recover the plastic, and turn it into polymer that goes into, uh, back into the manufacturing process. Plastic bottles these days are about 30 or 40% recycled material, which is great. Um, you can turn it into a marketing campaign. Levi's, these jeans are made of garbage. Sounds good. Each pair of Levi's jeans now contains, I think it's eight plastic bottles. Well, it's polyester derived from eight plastic bottles. You can build bridges from it, and you can lay roads from it. In fact, I saw there was a web report yesterday of a road in the Netherlands that they're laying um, children's playgrounds with recycled plastics rather than throwing them away into landfill. So they can be used. One of the biggest problems that I think Antoine will mention briefly is that plastics tend not to mix with each other. And so if you take two sorts of plastics, you can't recycle them together. You have to recycle them separately, which is why uh, lots of plastics aren't recycled, because you have to rely on people to separate them before you actually start the recycling process. We came up with a process a couple of years ago in my group. We, we, we do a lot of shouting in my group, as you can probably work out. We use sound quite a lot to do chemistry. It's actually ultrasound, so you can't hear it, but it is sound. So what we do is, if you have polyblue and polygreen, polyethylene and polyethylene, for example, but two different polymers, if you shout loudly enough at them, and my colleagues will tell you I'm well capable of doing that, then what happens is they break up. And as they break up, some of the blue bits will react with the green bits, and form these sorts of materials. So what? Well, actually, imagine this is oil and this is water. You're trying to make a salad dressing. You have olive oil and you have vinegar. You shape them together, and they just separate out immediately. If you put a little bit of mustard in, or other salt will do it to a certain extent, but mustard powder is the best because it tastes better. Then it tends to coat the oil droplets and make them stable within the water. Detergents work by having a little bit of the molecule like water and a little bit like oil, and that stabilises the system. Well, we end up with an in-situ process that is the same, and it makes recycled materials usable. They're not desperately high quality, but they're usable. But it is energy intensive. And you can't have everything. Well, you can, as Janet will tell you later. <laughs> okay, so that's me done. So I'm going to hand over to Antoine to tell you a little bit more about natural polymers. <coughs> yeah. It's okay. Right.
4: Good evening, everyone. Um, I will tell you a bit more about alternatives to plastics, and that's something I'm going to do first by emphasizing something you should not forget. And that's I hope Gareth's convinced you now that plastics are useful. They're useful for many health reasons, but also because they're a huge economic factor. A lot of jobs depend on the plastic industry. A lot, a lot of actually um, companies depend on the plastic industry. So. It is not reasonable, at this stage, to completely eradicate plastics. That's the first thing. But we need to find some solutions. The first thing to look at are the applications we use plastic oil, you know, There's just a couple of them, and you will notice that the main one is packaging. So that's one of the first things we need to address. Do we actually need all the packaging we use? That's the first question. The other thing I want to highlight is that the problem of recycling... I'm going to move it away. Oh, well. The thing you need to realise is that basically there's not that many plastic around, and that's why you can recycle some of them. That's why you can recycle most of them. So you've got maybe five, six plastics that can do pretty much everything. So another solution could be just to impose people, and the industry in general, to use less plastic, less salt of plastics, that will make the recycling easier, that will make our recycling rates a lot higher. That's one of the other solutions. But we're not doing too bad in terms of recycling. If you look at Europe, uh, all those countries in, in green have, have recycling rates more than, than 30%, 35% in the average. <coughs> and if you look at the trends in general, you'll see that over the past few years, the recycling rates have been gone up. This seems to work better. But yet people are, are focusing a lot on the bad things about plastic. It's because there's still a high proportion of plastics that's going to end up in landfills? landfill, things we don't know how to do many things, yet. Or things that are going to naturally lead into the environment, whether it's, it's something that we want or something that you know, we didn't want in the first place. And that's what people focus on, like, plastic in the ocean, plastic uh, all around you when you're driving, you drive know, on your roads. So you would, you would hear a lot of people saying, well, we should go back to natural material. Right? What's wrong with paper? What's wrong with cardboard? Let's do that. Let's go to natural things. And in fact, you know, if you think about nature, in general, the entire biology and the environment around us, there's not, there are some polymers. So the same type of polymers that are used to make us that are around right. things you may have heard of like DNA, proteins, cotton, cellulose, and we'll talk a bit more about this. These things are polygons, so why don't we just use it, you know, to, to make uh, to make our traditional plastic? Well, it's because when nat- nature evolved, they didn't have a plastic bottle in mind at all. So the reality is you can't really make something that would be transparent, as light, as resistant, as a plastic bottle. Which is still really useful when you think about Transport water in the world countries, all the things like this. This is less relevant for us now, because we've got other waste. But this type of application, they're vital for some people. This is the difference between the water that you would be able to provide to a village somewhere really remote and, and no water at all for several months. So we can't really eradicate those things. But we need to find better molecules, better ways to make this type of materials. But There's some things you can learn from nature, and this is how to use other molecules to make those those type of plastics. So you will hear a lot about (coughs) bioplastic, and this is what I'm mainly going to focus here. So the difference between the conventional plastics and bioplastics is that instead of using, as building blocks, things that are coming from fossil fuel resources like oil, we're going to use try to use at least molecules which are derived from biomass or things which are natural that are renewable, things we can grow, etc. What type of feedstocks can we use to make to to extract those molecules and try to make some plastic? Well they're diverse. We can use (coughs) carbohydrates or sugars which are derived from plants. You can use other molecules which are derived from wood. There's a lot of things we can do using the tools of chemistry and take those molecules And try to make some plastic. And this is what our research in our group and in other groups in our university is focusing on. So, why we think these are part of the solution is because it allows you to close the loop, (coughs) to reach a circular economy of plastic. So, basically, to take molecules that come from nature, but you can renew more easily than, let's (coughs) say, you can renew oil in general, which takes billions of years millions of years. And you can provide an alternative to the end life of those plastics. Obviously the if you can recycle them mechanically that's great because then you don't lose any value. You use your bottle, you grind it, you reform another bottle, that's great. But you have to realise that at some point some plastic will find their way in the environment. Agents like you know Gareth Coleman, I'm a bit more brute, but i i I will spend this because it's recorded. Um, but what those bioplastics do is they provide another possibility for degradation of those materials. You can design those plastics so that they can be composted, so they can be eaten by bacteria and microbes, etc. Or you can just design them so that if they're living in the environment, at some point, naturally, they will degrade. And as they degrade, they will reform those molecules from nature or create some CO2 that then goes back to plants and the, the loop is closed again. So that's one of the solutions. <coughs> so something I want to draw your attention on is that bioplastic doesn't mean biodegradable. This is two different things, and this is something I'm going to try to illustrate. So this is a map here that just shows you that you can have some things that are come from biomass, some renewable things or from nature, but are not degradable. But some of them are both, and you know, that's suitable for certain applications. I don't think we have this in the UK. We may have this composting label here. I'm not really familiar with it. But all around the Europe, you can find those labels on, on your products that just show you that your plastic materials are only from a renewable pistol, that they can be composted, etc. So that's something to look for you know, when you are looking look at, 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 your, at your products in home. How do you know that it's biodegradable? Well, Google Europe, with all this um, certification, etc., they provide the guidelines to actually. I don't want you to read this, it's just just to show you that there are strict rules that enable people to mark on their product this is biodegradable or not. And that's something that you need to be aware of. Anyway, moving on to a bit more chemistry, the two strategies I wanted to highlight are, are these ones. If you start from biomass instead of using fossil fuel resources, which, like I said, take millions of years to form, you have two strategies. Either you make from those molecules the same group of polymers that we've always made, the things that don't occur the polyethylene that Gareth talked about. Or, in our case, in our research, what we are trying to do is to make completely new materials that are still performant enough but have a better degradability, and more options for their life. The first strategy is illustrated by maybe what you've seen in the shops, with the plant bottle of Coca-Cola. What they're doing here is that they are making the same old polymers that we've always made. We used to make it from fossil fuel, but now we're doing it from ethanol, which is from sugar. That's the only difference. It doesn't mean that the material is more degradable by any way. But the feedstock itself comes from nature, and that's the difference, and that's how they're very important However, you need to not put your hand in the sand and, and know that those materials, they're still not as degradable, Even if there's more research going on these days about how to make degrade be even better. Another strategy is illustrated by this type of plastic, which is called polylactic acid. Which is, in this case, something that comes from nature, from biomass, you can get it from Corn, sugarcane, wheat, etc., and you obtain material that degrades a lot better than your traditional bottle. So that's the alternative strategy. You make a new material entirely based on those new natural molecules. But the problem of performance is a, is, a, is a big one. Right? You are supposed to ask consumers. You really you, know, you want a product that performs, right? You want a bottle that's not leaking, etc. And unfortunately for some of the new materials that we're making, this is not really the case. You think that, for example, deform when you heat them, etc. So what we do in our labs is, and this is where the talks become a little bit more technical, is we make new plastics which are derived from both sugar and CO2. We basically combine them both and we create those new molecules that we can then transform into new materials by using this tool which is called the green polymerization. This is just a fancy way to say that you take something cyclic and you break it apart and you form the chain. I'm not going to demonstrate you by asking with your own hands etc. That's something I'm doing with a smaller <coughs> But the beauty of these things is because sugars in nature are abundant and there's a lot of diversity in them. You know, they make very complex structures. What we can do with those polymers is we can tune their properties. So we can, one day I hope, try to uh, tailor and achieve the performance that we need for. And that's where I'm going to stop now. I think Janet will now to speak to you about finding alternatives where actually plastic then might be not and accessible.
3: Thank you, Antoine. You left that in a perfect position for me. I'm going to talk about some of nature's polymers and specifically nature's polymers that contain sugars. And I'm going to use a very particular example of something that we've developed recently. So many of you will have seen these sorts of headlines over the last couple of years, relating to things like plastic microbeads. Let's just go back every step. Talking about very, very small beads of plastics, made of exactly the sorts of things, particularly that Gareth was talking about initially, so plastics that do not break down easily in the environment that have been put into various products to achieve particular effects. And I brought a couple of examples along of some products that may in fact no longer be on the market. And the reason they may no longer be on the market is we've actually seen some fairly good action with regards to this. And plastic microbeads, persistent plastic microbeads, are banned in wash-off products or rinse-off products as they're called in the UK. You may not put these anymore into face washes, for example that has actually left manufacturers with a little bit of a conundrum because they didn't put them in the product because they wanted to use up some more plastic. They put them in the product because you liked what they did when you washed your face with them or something similar. And there are lots of other applications that I'll show you later on. So it's perhaps useful to think about what the actual problem is. Is the problem that one made microbeads? Or is the problem that one made microbeads out of the wrong thing? So what we did is we made microbeads out of these sorts of plastics like polyethylene that are very, very resistant, that do not break down and last for hundreds of years, particularly in somewhere like the sea. And when you use them, they wash off, they go straight down the drains. There are lots of opportunities for recycling and reusing certain types of polymers. This one would be a bit challenging. I'm not entirely sure I particularly want recycled polymers that came from somebody's shower drain. So they go down the drain, where do they go? They go to the wastewater treatment plant. Wastewater treatment plants, particularly in countries like Britain, are quite sophisticated places, and a lot of things are well broken down in them. But those very, very tiny beads can pass through the filters that are used to stop things getting out of wastewater treatment plants. They're extremely small. I didn't bother to bring in the microbeads because they look like a powder. So those things, if you're trying to filter them out of the water in the wastewater treatment plant, would really slow the progress of things through your wastewater treatment plant. So a lot of them can escape the squeeze. And when they do that, they ultimately end up in the waterways or in the sea. And I use this as an opportunity to put in a beautiful photograph of some of the beaches of Cape Town. This is a genuine water outlet. It is treated water. It is unlikely that you would get any sort of illness or anything if you swallowed some seawater from the vicinity of that. But it is clear that there is was particulate matter in it. Now I'm not suggesting that those are all microbeads, but that is where the microbeads would end up, in the oceans, ultimately. And if we go back and look at some of these products, you'll see that there's actually a hint in some of the lists of ingredients about where the microbeads are or were. And this is just one type of product. And those microbeads that end up in the ocean can get eaten by fish. I guess to a fish, or at least a very small fish, That might look like a bit of food, like a bit of fish egg or something. And there are people, again in Australia actually, this is an Australian, this is the excrement of the Australian perch, collected from the Murray River regions. So people go around doing these things, If you see you see your taxes paper, scientists do some pretty strange things. But it is important. And they found manifest in that fish people matter. So we know the fish are eating them. Do we know that there's a problem? We don't have any, I certainly don't know any evidence that says a large fish eating plastic microbeads will die, however I eat fish. Not entirely sure I want to be eating plastic microbeads, just as is dead into my fish. So perhaps then putting things that last for a long time into wash or products like this isn't the smartest thing to do. Surely we can do better than that. We like the products, we like, might like this abrasive nature that you can impart or indeed the very nice Smooth feeling rheology if you've got small beads. So, what can we do? Can we make beads out of something else? Well, that was what we set out to do. We thought, well, this looks like an interesting problem scientifically and indeed a useful one. So, we know that we can't use water soluble polymers for this, which could be a solution in some cases because we're trying to put them into products that have water, lots of water. So what's nature's solution to that? I mean, there's a lot of water, particularly here. It's an easier lecture to give here than in Australia. There's lots of water in England. And nature yet is able to use polymers to hold things together very robustly. And the polymer that holds a lot of plants together is something called cellulose. And I'm gonna show the most complex chemical structure that anyone has seen in this lecture. And then I'm gonna show you how beautiful this is. Each one of these little units is glucose. And cellulose, the polymer that is making up most of the cell walls of the plants and the trees out there, and that's holding them together, is a homopolymer of polymer and glucose. And there's a whole lot of glucose units linked together. And those, you know how soluble glucose is, you put it in a glass of water, you stir it up, it disappears. As soon as you link it together like this, and then let it build itself into this beautiful structure, you have a highly insoluble material. So nature has solved the problem in an incredibly elegant way. However, because it's insoluble, it's difficult for us to form it into a different shape, you can certainly cut wood, but you can't melt it and pour it. So we need to find ways to then keep that beautiful structure, use that robustness, but keep the biodegradability of the polymer. And most of the research that group does is about that, it's about converting cellulose into various complex materials, for things as diverse as tissue scaffolds, supports for electronics that might be biodegradable, things that change the viscosity, so rheology modifiers in various products, and the microbeads. Now, I said that it's difficult to form cellulose. so what we do is we have a way of dissolving cellulose, which I won't go into here, and then we push it out through a membrane, which is a, a glass or a ceramic or a metal membrane that has very small holes in it, and if you sweep that away with something like vegetable oil, you're able to produce droplets. Of very consistent size. Now, there's a little bit of physics behind that, and you have to very carefully design your process and your process parameters to make sure that you are sweeping away the droplets at a particular size. But that's quite an accurate picture of the beautiful, narrow polydispersity droplets you can form. And those can be set into beads. Those are microbeads of various forms, and that is a very close (coughs) scanning electron micrograph of one of them. You can see it is quite. Attractively spherical. That means that when you place it in something like water and then rub it across your skin it will feel smooth. Now I are used in lots and lots of different things. They're not just in cosmetics. There's probably a few people in the audience thinking, oh well I don't have to worry about that because I don't use it. Well, they also go into paints and are extremely good if you can make them nice and reflective and light. Paints are actually remarkably heavy things. The paint on the wall of a building can weigh quite a significant amount and they give, can give strength to polymers, so you could use them, for example, in coatings that require high performance. Or indeed, you want golf? Drive a golf cart. Golf cart windscreen has got microbeads set into the polymer so that it has impact resistance. They're not these beads, they're ones that deforms like when your golf ball hits the golf cart screen. And a similar thing is used for bulletproof glass. They're also used to blast paint or very sensitive things like aeroplanes. You don't want to fit the surface of an aeroplane when you're removing the paint to replace it with new paint. And if you use very narrow polydispersity beads, the beads with the same dimensions, you can get the paint off without damaging the thing underneath. And of course the cosmetics that I showed you. So in lots and lots of different applications. But because these beads are still made of exactly the same material that nature produced in the plant, they are as biodegradable as the cells wall because the, the plant cell walls so if you think about a piece of wood in the environment it's very rapidly degraded and very quickly you can see fungi growing on it once it's dead the same thing happens with these macrobeads
1: and so what we've done now
3: is we've um taken some of this technology and put it into a company called natural and natural is working to develop scaled up processes to make these beads for industry so that we can have the products we like without generating a new environment and I'm going to stop there. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> and we can take some time.
1: Thank you. Now, we should have, these microphones should work. Are they working? Some people are hearing, some people are not, I think. Mm-hmm. I'm going to see what Ben is. Our IT person, sound person. Are we okay? Would you like to just say a few words? Just check that we're all okay. Hello. Hello. Well, I'm uh, like, okay, we're well, we'll just. Go I'm enough. We'll to go. Try people to back your at the back, of your feet, if you really can't hear, do let us know, and we'll go back to the lapel mics or or what have you. So, this really is a chance now. Over to you to. Um, raise comments, ask questions. So it's hands in the air, and I'm going to try and manage the flurry of activity. We've got a gentleman who's already straight away asked a question. Can I ask you um, to wait for the microphone, please, because people at the back won't be able to Just hold it. Yeah.
4: Thank you. Okay. Uh, it seems to, to me that one of the keys uh, to recycling is to make it as easy as possible uh, f- for non-human I- intervention. <laughs> And I, saw, I wondered whether it's, it's feasible to put markers into plastic so that it is easily recognisable by the processing equipment. Um, even just putting a QA code or, or some sort of BART uh, mark, li- like processing it through a, a supermarket, might help. Right. Does anyone have... Well, I'll,
1: I'll start with that,
3: and everybody else can add. So there is actually quite a lot of technology like that used. Some sophisticated plants. Um, there are uh, what would you call them? What do you call those things that move along conveyor belts? <laughs> Thank you. Conveyor belts where the plastics become spread out, and by irradiating the plastic and then measuring the spectrum, that uh, like an infrared spectrum from that, you can automate the process of separating out the plastics. And it actually uses the one the one I've seen uses some technology that was developed for the food industry to separate out chips that are not a good colour. Uh, and it uses a blast of air to ping it off the line, right? So you ping off perhaps the polyethylene there and the polyethylene terephthalate there. And that can work very well, Um, but it requires a number of things. It's helpful if the plastic's clean, it's helpful if they're not physically mixed together, as Antoine was saying, you you put different plastics into the same thing. Um, And it doesn't work with very dark materials, particularly black plastics. And that's one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, that black plastics are not acceptable in your recycling. Because actually, they just cannot be used in that kind of plant. So if your recycling were going to that kind of plant, and not all plants use that, that wouldn't work. So so I think that's part of the solution. But we're a heck of a reliant on these single-use plastics. And in some cases, that's advantageous. So for example, food packaging has hugely reduced plastic food packaging has hugely reduced plastic food waste but you know honestly i know gary's going to say something about this but really i'm even old enough to remember when these didn't exist you know it's not that long ago and i survived as a child without plastic water bubbles so i do wonder sometimes about some of our use of what could be a really valuable resource yeah.
2: do you want to add no, something i um, just to respond to Janet, I completely agree the number of plastic bottles and everything else is ridiculous and using um, more than single use plastic bottles is fine um, you know, in a sense people are talking about going back to glass uh, glass bottles are fine until they get broken when, in which case they're dangerous you know, if you go on a beach and you find a bit of broken glass you know, people don't talk about banning the glass because somebody's left it there sorry I'm going back <laughs> but um, I, I completely agree. Yeah, you know, go, go back to the days when there was a deposit scheme and glass bottles. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to collect all the glass bottles I could from our street, take them back to the post office, and get a shilling for each one. For the younger members of the audience a shilling was five p, and it actually bought me some sweets in those days. Um, so whether it's a deposit uh, type scheme. Or we just don't make them in the first place. I think Janet's absolutely right of, of using um, you know, uh, bottles that you can refill from fountains and various other things. To go back to your question, so,
4: um,
2: I think you're absolutely right. It, with a lot of these things, the technology is possible. Um, so, For example, each of them will have a marker at the moment telling you what the polymer is, one of those recycling marks. but quite often you can't see them, you can't detect them. Uh, Those could be made to stand out from the polymer packaging, for example, to make them much easier. Ultimately, it comes down to cost and economics. And Manufacturers over the years have had the attitude that people will not pay the extra. That, I think, is changing quite markedly and quite rapidly partly driven by legislation in, in Janet's case and the case of single-use plastic bags, which we now all have to pay for. Uh, so when people are forced to pay for them, they cut their use and pay for what they really need. And so perhaps you know, the problem is that it's too easy and it's too cheap. Okay,
1: Thank you. Okay, let's have something else. I'll... So there's the gentleman at the back. I'm going to struggle to get everybody There was a hand over here and there's some hands <laughs> over here. So let's... Sorry,
2: sorry, Sorry, (laughs) Laura. I know, it's keeping me fit. Hello. Can you hear me? Yeah, sure. Um, Just on the suggestion that you don't need to really ban plastics, is there no way that you can sort of look at the past and think, well, we only really solved the smog in London by banning coal burning? Does it not look like maybe financial penalties and legislation is the only way to really challenge it? and then have a quick turnaround as, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, just like with the microbeats problem. Yeah, uh, yes, I agree. Uh, the, the single-use plastic bags, I've, I've got some slides but I won't show them. Uh, the 5p charge for a plastic bag was actually introduced in Wales uh, two years before it was introduced in England, and then Northern Ireland a year later, and then a year later in England and Scotland. And if you look at the data, Uh, appealing to people's better nature made absolutely no difference in England and Scotland. In Wales, the number of plastic bags used reduced to something like 5% of what it had before the charge was introduced. As soon as the charge was introduced in England, the number that we used dropped to something like 10% of what had been used the year before. So just the legislation of forcing people... I mean, £5 probably isn't very much to most people. Yeah, it's it's a reasonably nominal charge. But... It worked, and now the amount, the number of single-use plastic bags is still, I think, too high, but very much less than it was before. So I think legislation is uh, is the answer. Janet works quite closely with a number of companies. Would they have changed the microbeads had it not been for the legislation?
3: I think some of them saw it coming, so they will tell you that they were doing it. But had they not suspected that there was. Uh, the freight train of uh, you know legislation roaring down the line towards them I don't suspect they would have done it as fast I think so, they would be honest yes yeah. you're
1: right okay. um, I'm going to turn oh okay have got a question
5: over there uh hi so this uh lecture essentially the premise of it is proposing that bio-based plastics are a solution to the pollution problem or at least that's what the the title of the lecture was. And the first thing I want to say is that it's fantastic that bio-based, bio-based plastics will reduce our, or can reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, but I think it's misleading to say that those polymers are the solution to pollution. Um, so it's all well and good saying that they are compostable. Um, in conditions, I think the PLA example was 90% humidity and 60 degree heat, but if those plastics find their way into the marine environment where it's you know five degrees max, they're not going to degrade at a rate that is anything like the 80-day degradation rate you see in those environments so yes we can recycle it and we would be able to compost it in our uh, western world but the vast majority of the plastic pollution comes from the developing world and they don't not recycle because they're idiots they don't recycle because they don't have access to proper waste management so do you not think the real issue here is access to proper waste management rather than the plastics themselves because the plastic even if it is in a landfill isn't part of a pollution problem it's properly managed Sure, it's not as environmentally advantageous as recycling, but it's not going to end up in the ocean. So I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, no Thanks, um, <laughs> Thomas. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right to say that the current bioplastic and um, some of our best efforts right now, they are not good enough. You know, like, if, you know, if they go in the ocean, they're not going to degrade, etc. But that's why we do research, that's why we're trying to do uh, something better. And that's why you know, some of the research is more and more towards having a trigger. So having something that will be performance you know, when, when it's needed, when the use is there, but then couple it with, with a trigger. And when you hit certain type of environments, exactly like the one you described, not the one, I'm not talking about the one that requires 60 degrees, 90% humidity, but things which are more tailored to where this is gonna end up. You know, something that, can we design something that reacts with uh, certain components of seawater, of you know, multi-electrolytes? This is, this is a, the type of thing that are coming out. Because more and more, you're absolutely right, people are realizing that you can't legitimize uh, the throwaway culture by saying that, yeah, it's fine, it's gonna be a bioplastic, it's gonna degrade. It is not there yet, so we, we just need to. I uh, just need to, to tender the, the message and the waste management. Yeah, definitely. That's. I think everyone will agree that we just need a, a better education of people or how these things are. What's the impact on the environment of these things? Waste management. That's where you need to talk to your council to explain to ask them but why. Why can I recycle this when when I go to my friends that lives in this? Uh, this council, you know, I can do it. You know, this is the type of question that we ask customers, we, we can, and, and people vote, and we, can, we can ask. That's as simple as this. And if I was a dictator, I'm going to tell you what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> I would do something really simple. And, and you know, that comes back to the, the, the question by the gentleman about the recycling. I will make all polyethylene blue, I will make all polypropylene red, and I will be salted. But then that's a question of products. You know, do you really want all your products to look the same? So it's a really complex issue, and, and there's no simple solution. But we just need to be aware of the limitation of all the solutions we're proposing. And when you hear someone like me say, yeah, yeah buy your plastic as a solution," you need to be critical and say, well, oh, actually, no, he's talking rubbish." You know, in this case, it's not the degrade, and that's absolutely fine. We just need to be critical. And, and, and. Can can I was saying, can I just sneak in? I used the word
2: idiot to try and provoke a reaction. No, I think you had a really good point. In this country, I don't think there is any excuse for the litter problem that we have. There are bins, there are recycling bins, and if you can't find one, take it home and put it in your household garbage. There's no, there's no excuse. In certain other countries, you're right, there is no integrated waste system, and so things can be thrown away because some of those countries have problems that are more serious than uh, waste management. But in a sense, you're right, it's it's education. Maybe we have to try and direct uh, aid in in those sorts of directions. But you you said it yourself, um, bioplastics, any plastic, won't work once it gets into the environment. It's a question of keeping out of the environment in the first place.
3: But it provides some interesting opportunities. I mean, one of the things I, I, you know, as a scientist, like to do is think, well, how might we solve that problem? You know, we didn't get to this point with a relatively developed consumer culture by accident. We did it because we liked the change in our quality of life that it brought, Okay. So then, why can't we be smarter and design materials with lifetimes that are matched to what is required? And there's a really interesting example with this litter, litter thing that I, I, I don't have a solution for, but I'm sort of thinking of because it provides a nice knotty materials problem. In countries like, uh, for example, India, where, I, where I've been and seen this, um, and many people are, are quite poor and so they buy products in very small containers. So they might buy, for example, shampoo and single-use sachets because that's all they can afford. Now, that means you've got a tiny bit of a product in actually much more carbon in the packaging than you have in the product, which is crazy because the packaging is just there to hold the product together. But from a materials point of view, could we be smart and design that package such that it only lasts for as long as it needs to last and when it's discarded, as it will be, because, as you say, there isn't an appropriate waste management stream for it to go into that it degrades so from the point of view of a scientist or a technologist this actually can provide some really interesting problems, materials with appropriate lifetimes matched to their life
1: thank you, um, we did have a question over here you um, I just wondered whether any of you saw a strong future for use of bioplastics within the construction industry, construction industry. just thought it was something you haven't touched on
3: can I say something about construction? You want to say something about no, construction? No, no, no. You're the bioplastics. No, no, no. Constru- yeah. Construction is a really interesting industry because you need to make robust materials that last for quite a long time. Nobody's terribly happy if your building starts to degrade uh, because it's designed to degrade. And I personally think that designing materials or selecting materials that are amenable to sensible recycling. In the building industry, is far more has far more legs because then we can design something that is robust and lasts. It could be a bio-based plastic, but it's not one that's going to degrade readily in the ordinary environment. Because personally, I'd be a bit annoyed if my house started to degrade uh, because it was made of a plastic that we thought was going to be great and biodegradable. And I suspect that if we did the proper life cycle assessment, we would find that that would be more damaging in lots of ways than actually designing materials such that we can recover them and either remanufacture them or even reuse them as they are.
1: I'm conscious that time is pressing on, so I'm gonna suggest that we come back to another question. So, gentleman in the middle here. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa.
2: Hello. I have a question primarily aimed at Gareth. Uh, You ended your section of the talk saying that the difficulties in recycling plastics and polymers were that different sorts didn't mix together very well, and this idea of treating some with ultrasound, um, causing them to split and mix, and creating this pseudo-polymer detergent. um, With the mixtures of different types of plastics which you could potentially make from that, Are they going to retain the properties that made them so useful in the first place and find similar applications if they're to be reused? Is it a feasible approach? Probably not. The ones that we've looked at so far, there's been a deterioration of properties, but that's also true when you collect plastic bottles and recycle them. You can only do that so many times before actually the material can't be recycled. You lose some material properties. And that's why you only have 30 or 40% recycled material into, uh, in current bottles. No, but on the other hand, if you can turn them into a lower quality material that is useful for something, it's better than throwing them away or burning them and adding to CO2 or dumping them. Um, so it, it's a question that yeah, you can use them for something, but you're right, you won't get the original.
1: Right, it is ooh, one minute seven, so I'm going to ask for one last question. So, I'm, I don't know if you, there's too many hands in the air. I'm going to go right to the back. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry no, That's right. all right. <laughs> I'm not being fair. I'm trying to spread around. <laughs> um, do you need to dash? <laughs> so, um, we'll finish at seven, but, so that people can get away, for those <clears> who've got car parking and you know, need to get back. But if you do want to hang around for a few minutes... I'm going on to Angelec, can you stay along a bit later? So, But we'll, we'll formally finish after
0: this last question, please. Um, coming back to where plastics are actually recycled and everything, do we think that part of the issue is actually with government forms and sort of maybe looking at countries like Denmark that are moving more towards circular governments and circular economies that rely on sort of recycling within the country more rather than countries like Australia, that at the moment exports a lot of its recycling to China. And China has stopped accepting that import, but there are a lot of other countries that rely on that business that don't necessarily have the means of recycling.
3: Well, it's, it's really interesting that you brought up the circular economy, because I think that's a very interesting framework to start to think about how we design materials. But I also really liked your point about kind of a local circular economy. So when we think about a global circular economy, there is still a lot of opportunity for us to export problems, to put it in a, in a very simplistic fashion. If we're actually doing that in a much more geographically constrained place, it become, there's a much bigger driver to making sure that you have real solutions to keeping that carbon cycling in the manufacturing cycle. And that just brings us to one last thing that we've hardly talked about, and that's the concept of chemical recycling. So we've talked quite a lot about mechanical recycling, and and Gareth sort of started to talk about this, but there is a lot of work now going into thinking about how you, with the least energy use, least pollution, least waste production, break down polymers, which are extremely useful, into smaller units and then remake them so that you don't have this challenge of loss of polymer properties. And that seems to me to be the kind of thinking that starts to develop when you truly think about circular economies and keeping carbon in... And that includes the carbon resulting from energy production in the cycle. Thank Thank you.
0: you. Do you think there's also... Do you think there's also the possibility for countries who are sort of still developing, for example, India, China, who take in these mass imports, is there the possibility of international intervention to sort of ensure that they develop in this formation of circular economies that sort of allow them to grow more sustainably rather than trying to change frameworks of countries like Great Britain and the US that are already so well formed? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, so exactly.
4: <laughs> yes you <laughs> no no the, what, what I want to say about this is is we to encourage this type of thing, we need to have an added value to this recycling if you want to convince people that you know it's worth investing in, in those recycling facilities, etc to take the waste. I've got nothing against you know other countries taking our, our waste if they actually do something useful if that's I'd be happy to see in this country, you know, the, the industry of recycling, of added value chemical recycling, etc., being developed, as long as it's not just dumping them somewhere. Uh, as for international intervention, I mean, it's, it's it will. I think there's more important battle to fight in terms of international intervention. That's my, you know, my main opinion. But the way we can act us as scientists is to develop those type of, of technology. And then they realize, wow, that's nice. We need to do that now because we can actually make money out of it. We can give jobs to people. This is, this is I think, the, for me, the way forward rather than having okay. uh, a, a street ban. Right.
3: One last word from Janet. It's another opportunity. The technological jump. If you think about telephones and uh, mobile phones, I come from Africa. A lot of Africa did not have fixed line telephone uh, infrastructure. When the mobile phone appeared as quite clearly an easier to use, more distributable, easier to install technology, many countries didn't bother with that fixed line. They just jumped straight across to the mobile phone technology. We can do the same thing with materials and plastics. And that means that there is advantage to developing clever technology, even if we're expecting it to be applied somewhere else. And that's it. Brilliant.
1: Thank you. OK, it has just gone seven o'clock, so please so say thank you. Very much. that next month's lecture is a film showing followed by a Q&A which is all around diamond mining in Sierra Leone. So do come along for that. Quite a different time of event, but look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Thank
3: you very much, everyone.